0: Chapter 22, verse 1. There was no war between Syria and Israel for three years because Ben-Hadad had been sent home, thoroughly defeated. In the third year, King Jehoshaphat of Judah came down to visit King of Israel. And the King of Israel said to the servants, Surely you recognize Ramah. Jehoshaphat has not been officially introduced to us yet, but he is now the new king in Judah, and he is a godly king. But one mistake that he makes is he makes an alliance with Ahab. Now making an alliance with Ahab is not a bad thing because Ahab is an Israelite. And making alliances with Israelites is not bad according to law. The problem is he made an alliance with Ahab. And they did this by exchanging daughters. Okay? In marriage. So that means now, and we'll come back to this later, that Jehoshaphat has taken his daughter, or he's brought a, um, a woman, Athaliah, who is a daughter of Ahab into his home. Athaliah is going to marry his son, who is in the line for the throne, which means now we have a descent of Ahab who's going to produce a king who will take the throne after Jehoshaphat. And so when this entire family dies out, the question is how does this apply to Judah when you have a king now that is half Ahab and half the line of David? And so Jehoshaphat is an incredibly godly man. However, he is mixing the bloodlines of David and the promises of a Messiah and the most evil king that has ever lived. And his daughter will be like Jezebel Jr. and her (laughs) evilness. I mean, with that father and that mother, unless like you had an incredible mentor in your youth group, there is no hope for you. So he's mixing the bloodlines, but it also brings an end to the war between Israel and Judah that's been raging for the last 70-something years, and it's ushered in a peace treaty with them, and so they're on good terms. Jehoshaphat is coming to visit him because he's got his daughter living in the palace of Ahab, so it's like visiting the in-laws. The king of Israel said to the servants, surely you recognize that Ramoth Gilead, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River belongs to us, though we are hesitant to reclaim it from the king of Syria, because he's way more powerful than us. Then he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to attack Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I will support you. My army and my horses are at your disposal. So remember, godly but not perfect. So he's got horses and chariots too. Then Jehoshaphat added, now here's where you see his godliness. First, Let's seek an oracle from Yahweh. He may be messing up in a lot of places, but at least he's like, "Mm, yeah, I'll go with you. I'm all for taking back our land, but let's consult a prophet first. So the king of Israel assembled about 400 prophets, the ones that replaced the ones that Elijah killed, and asked them, should I attack Ramoth Gilead or not? And they said, attack, the sovereign one will hand it over to you as king. But Jehoshaphat asks, yeah, but is there a prophet of Yahweh we can ask? Now, at first, you don't know that these are not prophets of Yahweh. He brings 400 prophets, and you're like, okay, he's consulting them. And they say, yeah, go and attack, and it's not clear. Until Jehoshaphat's like, this doesn't seem right. Like, this seems a lot more like pandering to what the king wants than a true prophets." And Jehoshaphat's probably been around long enough to know, too, Prophets of Yahweh don't like Ahab very much. And they're not so cheerful when they're like proving of him. And you're going to see that too, too, because later Ahab's going to say the same thing. So he says, isn't there a prophet of Yahweh? The king of Israel, verse 8, replied to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man through whom he can seek Yahweh's will. But I despise him because he never says anything good about me and always prophesies disaster. His name is Micaiah, son of Amalah. And Joseph has said, yep, that's the one I want. So Ahab even gets it. Like, yeah, there's one prophet, but I don't allow him to live in the palace because he never says anything good about me. The minute Jehoshaphat says, yeah, let's get him, Micaiah is immediately there. And the fact that he immediately disappears implies that he might be in the dungeon. That he's in the dungeon. There's no way that you would find the... There there seems to be an immediacy of his being presented before the king. Now the king of Israel, King Jehoshaphat of Judah, were sitting... The king of Israel and the king of Jehoshaphat of Judah were sitting on their respective thrones, dressed in their robes at the threshing floor of the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Zedekiah, one of the false prophets, son of Canaanah made an iron horns and said, this is what Yahweh says. With these, you will gore Syria until they are destroyed. Now there's actually an implication in the Hebrew that not only did he make these iron horns like of an ox, but he actually put them on his head and pretended to the, like gallop, as he said, and you will gorge the enemy. I told you these prophets love drama. Okay, they're the ones that are up on stage. And they love acting this stuff out. So he's demonstrating this. Verse 12. All the prophets were prophesying the same saying. Attack Rimoth Gilead. You will succeed. Yahweh will hand it over to the king. Now notice how many times the narrator is telling you. All the prophets are saying go. All the prophets are saying you'll succeed. Now the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, the prophets are in complete agreement that the king will succeed. Your words must agree with theirs. That lets you know that they are not being led by the Spirit. Get on the party wagon and make sure that the king walks away happy. But Micaiah said, As certainly as Yahweh lives, I will say only what Yahweh tells me to say. When he came before the king, the king asked him, Micaiah, should we attack Ramoth Gilead or not? And he answered, Attack, you will succeed. Yahweh will hand it over to the king. Now at this point you're like, What? everything in the context has been setting you up with the fact that he won't agree with them. They're all false prophets. They're saying it for money and promotion and power. Ahab even says he never says anything good about me. This is completely like, what the heck? Where did that come from? And just to prove it, the king said to him, how many times must I make you solemnly promise the name of the Yahweh to tell me only the truth? He doesn't believe him. He's like, you never say anything good about me. <laughs> but what's ironic here is, That's exactly what he wants him to do. He wants him to say something good about him. He wants Yahweh's prophet to get on board with him and back him up and all that kind of stuff. And then when he finally does what he wants to do, Ahab's so blown away by it, he's like, you cannot be telling the truth. (laughs) Speak the truth. He actually ends up then changing his mind and wanting the very thing that he didn't want, which actually is like, oh, crap. You just got me in my own argument kind of a thing. Like, you tricked me and made me say something I didn't want to say. That's exactly what's happening here. Micaiah said, I saw all of Israel scattered in the mountains like sheep, and they have no shepherd. Then Yahweh said, they have no master. So he's saying all of Israel like sheep, and they're scattered everywhere, because the king who's supposed to be shepherding is nowhere to be found. He's only interested in himself, Ahab. Then Yahweh said, they have no master. They should go home in peace. So basically Micaiah then changes his mind. Well, he doesn't change his mind. He changes the message and says, actually, you're not going to succeed, so you should go home in peace. God's not with you. The king of Israel said, Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you? He does not prophesy prosperity for me, but disaster. So, see, I told you. Now, at this point, you're like, wait a minute. Why the prophet says something and then change it? He's not telling the truth on one of them. Aren't prophets supposed to speak the truth? And if they don't, they die? Micaiah said, that being the case, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne with the whole divine council standing on his right and his left. Now, we've already talked about this. If you want to hear for that, go to my website. But basically, in brief, Yahweh has this council of angelic beings. Okay, And we already know them. We call them angels. We know angels are in heaven with God and that kind of stuff. The difference is that we are told in the Bible that he also allows these divine beings to also input, to give input on how things are going to be done. Just like he went to Abraham and said, Hey, Abraham, what do you think we should do with Son of Gomorrah?" I mean, ultimately, I'm God, and we're going to do what I want, but I want you to join me and join me in the building of the kingdom of God. What's your input? And he does the same thing. So now Micaiah is going to have vision. This is the clearest vision of the divine counsel in the entire Bible. It is more clear what actually happens in the divine council than anywhere else in the Bible. So Micaiah says, Behold Ahab. If you're wondering why I said one thing and then another thing, this is when God brought me up into heaven and put me on the divine counsel with all the other beings. This is what I witnessed with my own eyes. Yahweh said, Who will deceive Ahab? So he will attack Ramoth Gilead and die there. One said this and another that. Then a spirit or an Elohim or a being stepped forward and stood before Yahweh and said, I will deceive him. Yahweh asked him, how will you do it? He replied, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. And Yahweh said, deceive him and overpower him. Go out and do as you have proposed. So now, look, Yahweh has placed a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours, but Yahweh has decreed disaster for you. Zedekiah, son of Kanana, approached and hit Micaiah in the jaw and said, which way did the spirit of Yahweh go when he went from me and speak to you? Micaiah replied, look, you will see it the day when you run to the inner room to hide. So basically it says, you're not in agreement with Ahab. I mean, you're not saying what he wants to say. And he slaps and says, When the Spirit of Yahweh was speaking in me, where did it go next? It didn't go into you. And what's funny is, Zedekiah said with his own mouth, the Spirit of Yahweh left him. And when he was speaking, it wasn't the Spirit of God. But the irony here is Micaiah replies with great sarcasm. The prophets are very sarcastic. He says, you'll know where the Spirit of God is when my prophecy comes true and your master dies and the new king is going to be killing everybody who is responsible for making him think he'll succeed, and you're running and hiding for your own life. Have fun. (laughs) Let's deal with the many of you, and this is a big controversial passage. God literally says, Who will deceive Ahab? Same word for lying. And one of the spirits says, I will do it. And God says, how? I will deceive his prophets so that he will be deceived. And God says, go and do it. You have my backing. That's a hard one for us. Because we're used to thinking that God does not lie. But yet right here, God says, I want him to be deceived. And this angel says, I will do it. And God says, do it. You have my total 100% approval. And everything in the Bible has told us that God doesn't lie, yet the Bible is blatantly right here saying that he's deceiving. And this is a very hard, like, oh my gosh, is God even trustworthy? Now, there are passages that speak to this. Just listen. I'm not saying that this is going to settle. I'm going to give you the evidence. But the reality is it's another one of those things like, wow, God, you are way different than what we have made you out to be. And it's another one of those passages that you either accept it or you then walk away from him. Or you choose to reinterpret it and act like it's not saying that. However, there is no other way to reinterpret God saying, who will go and deceive Ahab? And he says, I will do it. And God says, go and do it. I don't know how you re-explain that in any other way. So it either is true and this is who he is or it's not and you just throw everything out because there is no way of following this. So let's talk about it. There are passages that read to the trustworthiness of God. Now I'm going to go over here only because it's hard to... So here are passages that we're used to reading. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not human, and that he shouldn't lie. Not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? So that verse makes it very clear that he does not change his mind. He follows through with what he says, like First Samuel chapter 15, verse 29. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. This also is throwing another wrench in the thing where, where God actually did change his mind when Nineveh repented. And Nineveh repented with the book of Jonah, and God changed his mind and let them live rather than destroying them. When he was going to kill all the Israelites and Moses repented and God changed his mind, you're like, okay, wait a minute. Now this is two wrenches because God is saying he doesn't lie here. But then in first Kings 22, it says he lied. And then he's also changing his mind. Other places in the Bible and here says he doesn't. So we're dealing with two issues now. Then let's go on. Titus one, two, in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. These are the verses that we usually hold on to and the commandment. Do not lie. But then you have 1 Kings chapter 22. And that presents a completely different picture. But it's not the only... Oh, sorry, one more. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, and which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. So this is what he's saying. This is clear. But we don't just have First Kings chapter 22. We also have other passages that talk about God deceiving. Jeremiah 4.10 Then I said, alas, sovereign Yahweh, how completely you have deceived this people. And Jerusalem by saying, you will have peace when the sword is at your throats. If you read the context of Jeremiah, God is literally convincing Israel that they're going to have peace. Meanwhile, the Babylonians are coming. And Jeremiah says, how you have thoroughly deceived the people, God. And he's praising Yahweh for it. You're like, wait a minute, this is not right. Not only is God deceiving, but he's getting praised for it by a prophet of God. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 9. And if the prophet is made a fool by being deceived to utter prophecy, I, Yahweh, have deceived that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him in front of my people of Israel. So God says if a prophet is deceived, it is I who have deceived him, and I will destroy him. Second Thessalonians chapter two verse eleven for this reason God sends them a powerful deception, so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, and have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. So those who have delight in wickedness, God is sending a deception into their lives to make them follow a lie, so that they will be destroyed. Later, we're going to be told that the Antichrist is going to be sent by God in order to deceive the nations, to amplify their judgment. What do you do with this? This sounds like a blatant contradiction, and it really threatens the character of God when we have constantly said over and over again, God is trustworthy. But here's the other thing, too. First thing I want to tell you is this. God put this in the Bible, and he did not apologize. He could have kept this all of the Bible to make it feel more warm and fuzzy for us. If he really wanted to hide this, he could. He controlled every single word. But he chose to put this in the Bible, and then he came to us in our lives and says, this is who I am. Now, will you fear me, and will you follow me? I don't want you to just know me as the warm, fuzzy God. I want you to know me as who I really am and how I deal with things. Can we trust God? And the answer is absolutely yes. Psalm 18, verses 25 through 26. You prove to be loyal to the one who is faithful to you. You prove to be trustworthy to the one who is innocent. You prove to be reliable to the one who is blameless, but you prove to be deceptive to the one who is perverse. This is your key to translating it all. Here's what you need to understand. Let's go back. All these verses about God's trustworthiness. Notice the context. Numbers 23. In Numbers 23, Balak has paid Balaam in order to curse Israel and to strip them of all their blessings. And Balaam then prophesies in God's name. God says, you can only say good things about Israel. And God says this because I have promised Israel a covenant and that I will bless them. And I am not a human, Balak, that I change my mind and go back on my promises and curse people just because you pay me more money. The context is promises of God. And what God is saying is when I make you a promise, I am not a human who changes my mind because I get more money or a better offer or it doesn't suit me anymore. You break treaties when it suits you. You sell out and violate contracts for more money. I make promises and I keep them and I do not change my mind. It is in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. You go on to First Samuel. It is in the context of Saul being made king. And Saul's begging to, to, don't please, don't abandon me, God. And God says, I already told you that you will no longer be king. And I will not change my mind just because you whine and cry and bat your eyes and try to manipulate me. I made a promise that you will no longer be king and your family will be wiped out. And I do not make, change my mind when I make promises. Good promises, bad promises for us. God does not change his mind. The context of Titus and the hope of eternal life. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that provides you the new covenant where you will live forever if you accept him by faith. I do not lie. I will fulfill that promise I made to you. Hebrews, he's referring back to the Abrahamic covenant that leads to Christ. And he says that he made a promise in the Abrahamic covenant. And none of those promises got fulfilled in the First Testament. And a lot of people could have said, you failed God. But then Jesus Christ comes along and fulfills all those promises because God doesn't fail and God doesn't change his mind. Even if it takes a couple hundred years, it will happen. Every single promise of God's faithfulness and trust we were in this is in the context of promises. But then you go to these where he's deceiving people, and it's on the context of the evil people of Israel, the leaders and the false prophets are shaking their fists at God and saying, screw you, we don't care about you. We're going to oppress the people, enslave them and make money off of them. And we're going to do whatever we want. We're going to lie, cheat and deceive and rob the people because this makes us money. We don't care about your covenant. And God says, fine, I will deceive you back. You will reap what you sow. This isn't violating my promises of the covenant. I told you, if you follow me in faith, you will live. You're not following me in faith, you will die. And you will die the same way that you killed other people. Deception. Ahab, you're going to die in the same field like you killed Naboth. The context of Ezekiel, false prophets. The context of Thessalonians, false prophets. Basically, what he's saying is you deserve to be deceived. You will reap what you sow. And this goes right back to Romans again. Romans says, because they pursued sexual morality and unnatural desires and idolatry, God gave them over to it. He allowed the very things to happen to them that they were doing to other people. And we know this. We say you reap what you sow, and we have no problem saying that. But then when God talks about how he makes it happen, you're like, oh, that's a little uncomfortable but you've been saying that to your kids all along. You will reap what you sow. If you lie to people, they'll lie back to you, that kind of stuff. And God's up in heaven saying, and sometimes I make it happen. Sometimes I actually make it happen. The other thing I need to say to this is this. He doesn't do this to everyday normal people. This isn't like God's going out and just deceiving and lying to people and everyday normal people. Knows who he's deceiving. Kings and leaders and false teachers and leaders. It's the people who've been established by God and the culture and the community to be leading other people, and they're supposed to be trustworthy. And they're deceiving people and making money off of it and becoming powerful off of it. And what God is saying is, I'm going to do to you what you've been doing to these people. He doesn't go to your next-door neighbor and say, oh, because you said a lie about where your property boundary really is and a dispute with your neighbor about the chain-link fence, I'm going to send somebody in to just lie to you and deceive you and back it up. So the other thing I need to say in this context is not for the everyday normal people. It's for the people that have been established in positions of power and leadership and who are supposed to be trustworthy, and everybody depends upon them. And remember the prophets, if they get it wrong, everybody gets it wrong because there is no way to fact check them because nobody has the spirit of God except for the prophets. And you're told by God to obey and follow the king because he's in the image of God. And if he gets it wrong, you can't go against him because he has absolute power. So when you have a man who has absolute power, who stands in the place of God and says, follow me, I will lead you towards God. And you have a prophet who is the only one who has the spirit of God and everything out of his mouth is supposed to be true. And you have no way of fact checking him. And he says, this is what God says. Then how do you get justice? You get justice when your Yahweh stands up and does the same thing to them and brings them down in their leadership that he had done to you when he ruined your life. And this is what God is saying. Ahab, you are a king, and you are untouchable. There is no one who can get justice on you for what you've done to Naboth and his family. There's nobody who can prosecute you in any kind of a way. Today we have courts and checks and balances, and there is no leader in the government that's untouchable. They might be corrupt and pay a lot of people off for a while, but eventually they do fall. And eventually their terms come to an end, even if they don't get prosecuted. But in the ancient world, a king and a prophet is there forever until they die. And what God is saying is, I will bring them down. And I will poetically justice. And the poetic justice... I will bring them down in the same way that they ruined your lives. I will give them over to their own lives. And to prove this point, even when the prophet says to him, hey, by the way, God has been lying to you, Ahab's going to go on and say, but I'll show Yahweh, I'll go in the battle and still live. Which exposes Ahab's arrogance and selfishness and pride even more. That even when he learns the truth, he still follows the lie. And what God is showing is this is who he is. So you need to understand that is God trustworthy? Yes, he is absolutely trustworthy. He's trustworthy to the people that he makes a promise to. He's trustworthy to the people who say, I love you, God, and I want to do the right thing. And when you screw up and you fail and you make mistakes, but inside you're guilty and you feel shame and you repent and you come back to him and you're not intentionally trying to oppress and make money and gain power off of other people, he will always be trustworthy to you and he will never deceive you. He will never to you. And Timothy says he's faithful to those who are even not faithful to him. And the covenant But if you say, screw you, God, and I will become a powerful man or woman, and I will use and oppress and lie and cheat and deceive people to gain more power and more money, and I will build my empire on the backs of the poor, of the people who cannot stop me, then God says, then I will make it happen to you too. In the same way that God says, do not kill. But he's going to punish Israel by the Assyrians coming and killing him. He's going to punish the Assyrians by the Babylonians coming and killing him. He's going to punish the Babylonians. Because the other thing is you cannot hold God to his own law. Because here's the other thing. When we lie, the reason the law says don't lie, because when we lie, we lie selfishly. We lie because we found a better opportunity to break our promises. We lie because we want what we want. And we don't know and care what will happen to people when we lie to them. And we don't even know how that lie is going to ripple effect through the universe and other people's lives but we don't we're limited in our knowledge and we don't really care in the moment you might feel guilty and remorse later but it's too late in the moment you don't care you're told not to lie because you are a flawed selfish individual who is only lying for your own gain at that moment and you don't care about anybody else at least in that moment but god is the divine god of the universe and he is not selfish He's not getting rid of Ahab because he's like, oh, I just don't like him anymore. He is dealing with Ahab who deserves to be punished for what he's done to people. He is removing Ahab through deception and allowing him to reap what he has sown because he deserves it for his sins. He's doing it because it's not selfish for Yahweh to get rid of him. It's beneficial to the whole community of people. And Yahweh knows exactly what the ripple effect of this event is going to happen in the entire universe because he's been in every possible future that there is. He doesn't just know your future and our future. He knows every possible future that we could have had. And there's a big difference between a divine, all-knowing God laying a plan of deception down to judge and bring down an evil, wicked king to benefit the entire world in his kingdom, to benefit the long-term purposes of his will that works out for your salvation and entering into the kingdom of God. And he knows how it's not going to be good and not going to be good and going to be good. And he does it for all everybody's benefit. And it doesn't fit him in any way because he's God. And that's the other thing we must understand. When we throw these laws back on him, we are given laws because we're not trustworthy. In the words of Dr. Who, he says, the reason I have rules and laws is because I'm not a good person. But if you are a good person, you don't need rules and laws because you will automatically do the right thing for the right reasons. And if God is good, he doesn't need his own laws applied to him because when he does deceive, it is the good for all people in the kingdom of God. And yes, that doesn't make sense in our finite minds, but once again, we are finite. How many times has God kept coming to Ahab and warning him? Even when the prophet's brought out by his own will, he's given the message. And that's the point I was making. Even when he finds out the truth, he still says, forget you, God. I'm going to still do it. Even with these guys, do you know when they first started sinning? In 1446, when they sinned in the golden calves. And the prophets, God will say, You've been sinning from the very day. Do you know when God will finally punish them? 722 BC. That's about 700 years. They will sin and shake their fist at God and say, Forget you, we'll do our own thing. And for 700 years, he has patience with them. And in that time period, how many prophets does he send? Hundreds of prophets. They constantly give them warning. And then when we go to the prophets and read them, how many times does God say, stop, change? And then they still choose it. So yes, even when he's deceiving them and giving them over, he still has the prophets there telling them the truth and say, come back to me, come back to me. And if you fall into the covenant again, then you will reap the blessings of I am a faithful God. Just like now, he's still in a way kind of telling them, I'm deceiving you. And that's what makes their sin so powerful is that God can literally deceive them into their false hopes and power and delusions of grandeur. But he can send a prophet and say, God is deceiving you into judgment. I mean, this is written in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel is literally standing there and telling them, you kings are being deceived by God for judgment. Repent and you won't be deceived anymore. You'll reap the pl- pl- promises of God. And they're like, nope, we're going to still do what we want to do because we believe the lie. And we want to believe a lie. And in that sense, that reveals their evilness even more. Very good point. He's actually revealing how much they do deserve to have this because they are being told that they're being deceived. Once again, I know the, the point of this is not to like make this feel all warm and fuzzy in you. And nor does the Bible ever make you warm and fuzzy. Sometimes it does. I, I said that wrong. Nowhere does every case in the Bible God trying to make you warm and fuzzy. In fact, I heard somebody say one time, a Bible that doesn't offend you doesn't convict you. A Bible that doesn't make you really wrestle with things doesn't make you know God. God is not up here trying to say, I want you to feel warm and fuzzy about me all the time. God is saying, this is who I am. Robert Chisholm says this, while the use of deception may seem contrary to God's truthful character, is actually consistent with his justice. Psalm 18.25-26, which I read, states the general principle that Yahweh always responds appropriately to people. Each individual receives from the Yahweh exactly what he deserves, and God's actions mirror those of the individual. God reveals himself as faithful and blameless and pure to those who are characterized by these qualities. But the wicked and deceptive rebels find that he is resolute and dangerous foe for who frustrates their efforts and even utilizes deceit to bring them down. As Alexander commenting on Psalm 1826 says, the same course of proceeding which would be perverse in itself or towards a righteous person when pursued towards a sinner becomes a mere act of vindictory vindic- vindic- justice. So God treats you the way that you deserve to be treated. That's the point that God is making. Once again, I'm not saying that just this brief discussion will wrap it all up neatly in your minds. And this is a discussion that can continue beyond this night if necessary. But this is also laying it out for the way to understand it. And you still have to wrestle with the fact that it is here. It is there. So they put Mic- Micaiah in prison. Verse 29, Then the king of Israel and king Jehoshaphat of Judah attacked Ramoth Gilead. Verse 27. Say that this is the king says, Put this man in prison, give him only a little bread and water until I have safely returned. Basically, you will stay here and I will come back safely and you will see that Yahweh is wrong. Micaiah said, If you really do safely return, then Yahweh has not spoken through me. Then he added, Take note, all you people. The king of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah attacked Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and then enter into the battle, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and then entered into the battle. So I'll show God, no one will know I'm a king. And then I won't die like God said I was going to. And by the way, they'll all be distracted by you, Jehoshaphat, because you look like the king. That's how much I care about you. Now the king of Syria had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight common soldiers or high-ranking officers. Fight only the king of Israel. So he says to 22 guys, you're specifically just defying, hunt, and kill Ahab. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they said, he must be the king of Israel. So they turned and attacked him, but Jehoshaphat cried out, and when the chariot commanders realized he was not the king of Israel, they turned away from him. Now that shows you God protecting him. Because there's no way the enemy would come to him and say, look, there's a king, kill him. Oh, wait a minute, he's not Ahab. Most of the time they would think, oh, but he's still a king and he's still the enemy, let's kill him. But instead they're like, no, let's go after somebody else. They're taking the command literally. So they flee. Verse 33, when the chariot commanders realized he was not the king of Israel, he turned away from him. Now an archer shot an arrow at random and just happened to strike the king of Israel between the plates of his armor. So it's basically this archer is in the field and he just launches the arrow at random. Either he like met, tripped and fell and it went out or he's just like, I don't know where to aim so I'm just going to start firing arrows. And the arrow just happened to find its way to Ahab. And not only that, but right between the plates of armor went into his chest. The disguise didn't matter. The randomness was not really random. It was the providence of God the king ordered his chariot to her, and he died on his chariot. The chariot that's supposed to be superior to the horse and chariot of God, the prophet. Turn around and take me from the battle line, because I am wounded. While the battle raged throughout the day, the king stu- stood propped up in his chariot opposite the Syrians. He died in the evening, and the blood from his wounds ran down to the bottom of the chariot. And the sun was setting, and a cry went through the camp. Each one should return to his city and his homeland. So the king died, and he was taken to Samaria, where they buried him. They washed off the chariot at the pool of Samaria, and this is where the prostitutes bathe. Dogs licked his blood, just as Yahweh has said would happen. The rest of the events of Ahab's reign, including the record of his accomplishments, and they built a luxurious, luxurious palace in various cities, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the King of Israel. Ahab passed away, and his son Ahaziah replaced him as king. The prophecy was fulfilled. The dogs licked up his blood as they're watching. Now here's the, 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 the interesting thing. The thing that he trusted in to protect him, his horse and chariot, is covered with his own blood. And it has to be washed off. Not only that, it says that his blood is going into the waters where the prostitutes bathe. And you're like, why would the narrator put that in? Because the judgment for prostitution is death. And prostitution is often also associated with idolatry. Israel is often called prostitutes and their idolatry. And in this way, Ahab is a prostitute. The prophets will call the kings and the priests and the prophets who worship idols prostitutes because they prostitute themselves off to false gods. The whole book of Hosea is making that point. And so it's very fitting that the king of prostitutes, metaphorically, is blood is draining into the pool of literal prostitutes. And that the judgment for both of them is fitting. And that is the poetic justice of God. And so what God is basically saying is, I am trustworthy. I will honor my promises. You can read this entire Bible. And you will see him honoring his promises over and over and over again. But to you who oppose me, to you who shake your fist at me, to you who say I will ascend the mountain of God and become greater, to you who will deceive and cheat and oppress, and you will promote sin and idolatry and debauchery to gain money and power over my people, to you I am not safe. To you I am an enemy. And to you, I will bring you down in the same way that you brought other people down because the blood of your victims cries out from the ground. And I will bring justice on you. And when wicked people fall, we celebrate. Not in a sadistic, evil way, but in a, the tyranny and the sin and the oppression is now over with. And it is sad that they deceive, were deceived and died, but it is also a good day when people like Saddam Hussein are taken out. And there's that bitter, that bitter, bitter, bittersweet feeling there. And this is what God is saying If you make yourself an enemy, I am not safe. But if you pursue me, I am faithful and trustworthy. And I do not deceive people who are just flawed and sinners if they have humble and broken and repentant hearts. But when you t- gain power and shake your fist, and stomp on other people, then beware. The Lion of Judah is coming. And that's what we must understand. This is who our God is. And when you get to the prophets, God is going to say, there will be a day when we will bathe our feet in the blood of the wicked. And that sounds very gross (laughs) and very horrific, but what God is saying is, I will deal with evil in the world. Period. Period. And he did it with Ahab in the same way that Ahab treated other people. And just where Naboth died, so it is happening with him. And that's what you must understand. God is faithful to his promises, but he's also faithful to his judgments. It's just it's more comfortable when we talk about him being faithful to his promises. And that's what makes for better praise songs, in our opinion. But Psalms has a praise song about him being faithful in his judgments, too.